This message comes from NPR sponsor Hulu. Don't miss the new docuseries Black Twitter, a people's history. From memes to movements, see how this powerful online community shapes culture and society. Black Twitter, a people's history, is now streaming on Hulu. From WHYY in Philadelphia, I'm Terry Gross with Fresh Air Weekend. Today you'll get to know our new co-host, Tanya Mosley. You may already know her work from when she was a host of NPR's Here and Now, from her Webby Award-winning podcast, Truth Be Told, as well as from her Fresh Air interviews. I recorded an interview with her about her life and work and how they intersect in the current season of her podcast, Truth Be Told. It focuses on the therapeutic use of psychedelic mushrooms to heal trauma, specifically racial trauma. Later, Tanya will talk about how rising temperatures and extreme heat are changing and will change our lives. Her guest will be Jeff Goodell, author of The Heat Will Kill You First, Life and Death on a Scorched Planet. And Justin Chang will review the new film Joyride. That's coming up on Fresh Air Weekend. This message comes from Apple Card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase. That's 3% on products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Support for this podcast comes from the Neubauer Family Foundation, supporting WHYY's Fresh Air and its commitment to sharing ideas and encouraging meaningful conversation. Last year, over 20,000 people joined the Body Electric study to change their sedentary, screen-filled lives. And guess what? We saw amazing effects. Now you can try NPR's Body Electric Challenge yourself. Listen to updated and new episodes wherever you get your podcasts. This is Fresh Air Weekend. I'm Terry Gross. If you're a regular listener to our show, you know that we have a new co-host, Tanya Mosley. She's not only a great interviewer, she's a really interesting and thoughtful person whose life experiences inform her approach to journalism and what she chooses to cover. It's been great getting to know her better as we continue to work together. I want you to get to know her better, too. So my guest today is our co-host, Tanya Mosley. She's had a wide-ranging career in journalism. She was an anchor of the NPR WBUR midday news show, Here and Now. She worked as the Silicon Valley bureau chief of public radio station KQED in San Francisco. Earlier in her career, she was a TV reporter in several cities, including Seattle and Louisville. She created and hosts the Webby Award-winning podcast, Truth Be Told, which is meant to be a safe space for black people to talk to each other and hear from experts in many fields about family, work, trauma, joy, and more. Tanya has described the podcast as exploring, quote, how you can be in a world that doesn't always want you to be your true self. The fifth season is devoted to the therapeutic use of plant-based psychedelics, magic mushrooms, to heal trauma. Her focus is on healing racial trauma. As part of her reporting, she went to a retreat in Jamaica to take mushrooms in a therapeutic setting in an attempt to heal her own racial trauma. She grew up in Detroit in the 80s and 90s and says, quote, it kind of felt like death knocking at your door. 
We'll talk about that later. Tanya, welcome to your own show. <laughs> I know, right? Kind of surreal. I know it's surreal for you, too. <laughs> I'm looking forward to this. So the first time we met in person, you told me the story of how you got into journalism. And I know you wanted to be a journalist when you were really young. Like, how young and what got you so interested in the field? Mm. You know, I actually don't have a memory of when I didn't want to be a journalist. Um I think what got me interested is a combination of things that all happened within the first few years of my life. My grandfather loved news. He loved newspapers. He loved watching television. He had the radio on in his home all the time. So I was just surrounded by it, and I spent a lot of time with my grandparents. And because of how he exposed me to news, I then became interested in it because I wanted to connect with him, and the rest is history. <laughs> So you started your career in TV journalism after doing an internship at the Detroit Free Press. Um, why did TV appeal to you? You know, TV did not appeal to me until my senior year in college. And it was actually a moment of desperation that had me turn to television. I just knew I was going to be a print reporter. The Detroit Free Press was such um, an instrumental part of my childhood. And I went to the University of Missouri with the idea that I was going to be a print journalist. But my senior year, I was so broke. So one day I'm just walking through campus thinking about how am I going to make more money? I was already working at a coffee shop. And I saw this flyer that said, hey, it was for this station, KMIZ, and they were looking for teleprompter operators. And I thought, okay, this looks like something that I could do and still finish my classes. So I went to a payphone called. They told me to send a resume. I uh, mailed a resume. And because I didn't have a phone, um, I put a friend's number down and I forgot about it. Finally, she saw me on campus and said, Tanya, this man at this station has been trying to get in touch with you. And so that is actually how I got into television. I started off as a teleprompter operator and then an audio operator, then camera and then moved on to become a producer for the morning show and then the afternoon show. So what year are we talking about that you became a 1990, teleprompter? Yeah, 1998. Okay. So let's hear a collage of some of your TV stories. Start with Tanya Mosley, who's live tonight at Harborview Medical Center. Tanya? Well, Christopher Monford is listed in serious condition here tonight at Harborview Medical Center. And sources tell King 5 he was not shot in the head as previously thought, but in the cheek. Ferry service here at the Keystone Terminal has been canceled for the night, and you can see why. The winds are extremely strong. They start to pick up around Oak Harbor and Mount Vernon, and we're hearing it's only expected to get worse. It's transition time here near the UW, and lots of students are leaving for the summer, but they're leaving all of their trash. Now, they're encouraged to use dumpsters like this, but I want you to see this. Instead, it seems that corners and lots seem much more appealing. The number of Braille readers among the blind has dipped dramatically. Only about 1% of library users actually use Braille. That's down 9% from 10 years ago. Technology has taken over. In Seattle, Tanya Mosley, King 5 News. Okay. <laughs> Why was I yelling, Terry? What, what's well, going on? Your voice sounds a little different. I think some of that is experience and age, and some of it is the difference between TV and radio. True. Yes, absolutely. You're announcing more so on television. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that's so true. <laughs> what was it like having to think about your hair, your clothes, your makeup, and being judged on that, which is 
one of the great advantages of radio is that you're not judged on your hair or your lipstick or your lack of lipstick. Oh, yeah. So, you know, I always consider myself on the edge of TV attractive. I mean, like, I believe that I'm attractive, but in the TV world, I was on the edge of that. I mean, I'm black. I'm not skinny. I prefer to wear my hair short. I wear glasses. You know, it was difficult for me. We'd have uh, consultants come in and talk with us about how to speak, what to wear, how to style our hair, what makeup to use. And while I really love adornment and I love expressing myself through my hair and makeup and clothing, for the purposes of my job, all I really cared about were the stories. And so I was a very nervous television reporter. Those clips that you played, there was always like a... um, a script in my mind that was happening, two of them at the same time. So the first was the story that I was sharing with the public, but the other was my appearance. I was always very aware of it. And it was very stressful. I mean, it was, it really is part of the reason why I transitioned out of news, because something happened in the mid 2000s, where the look for television became even more vampy. And at that time, I, I knew I could not really compete in that sphere. And I also could feel it in my career. Like, I wasn't exactly the look of the time. Were there times in your TV job where you were the only black reporter at the station? Oh, almost every place that I ever worked. I, I worked in lots of markets. There was either one person or myself. There were always a few more people of color and black people specifically in the background, so behind the scenes. But as far as on air, oftentimes I was the only black person at a, at a station that I worked for. Did that affect the stories you were assigned or the stories you wanted to cover? Yes, in that uh, I, I kind of became someone who had to explain black culture to newsrooms or fight a little bit harder to cover stories on certain parts of town. I remember when I was working in Seattle, the first week I started, a photographer, very well-meaning guy, we were driving through a neighborhood that was considered a black neighborhood, and he said to me, so, you know, I want to give you the lay of the land. This neighborhood is not the place to be, and this is not the area that you want to cover. And I thought, like, he has no understanding of who he's talking to. I mean, this is exactly where I want to be, and this is exactly the community I want to cover. And it really says a lot that that you actually don't see this community as part of the greater coverage that we're supposed to do to serve this community. It's almost like a metaphor for how black communities have been invisible to certain uh, benefits of being in America. It's true. And, you know, the thing about television news um, that might be different, that actually it's not might, it it is different than public radio. Public radio folks are so nice and so considerate. Also, you know, um, there's just a different sensibility um, and news purpose. But in television, everyone's pretty blunt. So in news meetings, you know, folks will say, we don't care about that story, or that's not important, or why should we care? And for me, I always had to fight against who I was in this moment to tell teams why we should care, which was pretty exhausting towards the end of my career in television. I had gained a reputation of being able to do what I wanted pretty much in the way of news stories because I just worked so hard to get there. But 
it always was a little bit of a fight. My stories would never be the 1A story, for instance. Um, you know, it would always be second block stories or the end of the first block of um, the news program. And that's because we just really didn't see value in certain communities unless we were covering crime. So if I was covering crime, of course, that would be the lead story. Um, and that just became more and more challenging to me over time. My guest is Fresh Air's new co-host, Tanya Mosley. We'll hear more of our conversation after a break. I'm Terry Gross, and this is Fresh Air Weekend. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Mass Mutual. According to Calendar.com, the average person schedules just 4.5 hours per year on finances. Mass Mutual gets it. Life is busy. If you can't find time to plan your financial future, find someone who can. Like a Mass Mutual financial professional. For the last 170 years, they've helped people plan for retirement, college tuition, and any other short- or long-term financial goals. Learn more at MassMutual.com. Support for NPR and the following message come from the American Cancer Society. Dr. Alpa Patel leads a team that researches cancer risk factors, and she shares how a new study aims to impact an underrepresented community. My greatest hope for the Voices of Black Women study is that it will help us understand and identify culturally tailored ways to change and really eliminate the unacceptable disparities for future generations of Black women as it relates to cancer. To learn more, go to voices.cancer.org. What does it mean to be Black in America? In NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, a collection of stories as varied, nuanced, and dynamic as Black experiences, you'll hear, it means everything. Search NPR Black Stories, Black Truths wherever you get your podcast. Let's get back to my interview with our new co-host, Tanya Mosley. I want you to get to know her better and to get a sense of her work outside of Fresh Air. She's had a wide-ranging journalism career in TV, radio, and podcasting. She was a host of the NPR WBUR Midday News Show Here and Now, was the Silicon Valley bureau chief at public radio station KQED in San Francisco, and was a TV news reporter in several cities, including Seattle and Louisville. She created and hosts the Webby Award-winning podcast, Truth Be Told. The current season is about the use of psychedelic mushrooms in a therapeutic setting to heal trauma. Tanya's focus is on racial trauma. She speaks with people who have taken guided mushroom trips and felt transformed by the experience. And she talks with therapists and reports on her own trip on psychedelic mushrooms in a therapeutic setting. I want to talk with you about the current season of Truth Be Told, which is about the use of psychedelic mushrooms like ayahuasca or psilocybin in a therapeutic setting to heal trauma. And that's something that, that's being researched in the U.S., the use of you know, hallucinogenics in a therapeutic setting. Um, so you decided to focus on can mushrooms heal racial trauma? Is that something that black people should be seriously looking into? So you went to a retreat in Jamaica where there is no legislation restricting the use of mushrooms. And um, you wanted to experience a trip, a mushroom trip for yourself and see if that was helpful for racial trauma that you've experienced over the years. So I want to play 
a clip from one of the episodes that's an example of some of the racial trauma that you experienced growing up. I was six years old the first time I experienced a drive-by, sitting on the porch with my mom on the east side of the city. What I remember most is how everyone fell to the ground. And when it was over, just like that, dusted themselves off and resumed, like we didn't all just almost die. The lesson I learned that day, keep it moving. The summer before high school was the first time I lost a friend. Her name was Tanya McWhorter. We not only had the same first name, we also shared the same initials. We'd pass notes in the hallway and sign them TM with a circle around it, like the trademark symbol. She was the last person I saw the day before summer break. We promised each other we'd plan a trip to Cedar Point Amusement Park. By mid-July, she and her 10-year-old cousin were brutally raped and murdered by a next-door neighbor. I didn't go to her funeral. Pretending like it didn't happen somehow seemed like the right thing to do. But I couldn't pretend with Frank Miles. A few weeks before homecoming, my senior year, he was shot and killed in front of our high school. A news crew arrived before an ambulance could get there. He bled out right there in front of us. He was 15. So that's a clip from the new current season of Tanya's podcast, Truth Be Told. Tanya, did you live with constant fear or did you try to brush it off like you say you did when you were six and the message you got was just just keep it moving? Yeah, Um I have to say this before I answer your question yeah, go because, ahead. you know, my mom said when she um, knew that I was doing this, she said, please don't talk bad about Detroit. <laughs> and that's just, I think everyone feels that way about where they live, but especially with Detroit because they're, you know, um, growing up there in the 80s and the 90s with so much economic divestment, people were just desperate and there was so much crime. It was constant. And um, I will say, you know, that is the complexity of being from a place like Detroit. I did live in fear, but it was also a place with so much love. And so I felt a combination of things. Like I felt held and safe and connected to community, but I did feel fearful constantly and mostly fearful for my future. In the moment, I felt like I'm just doing what I need to do to get through and dreaming about a future where I could be out of this place and feel safe. And so if I'm honest with myself, it's part of why I've never gone home permanently, because there was so much desire as a child to get out of there so that I could feel safe. Um, You know, I still hold a tremendous amount of survivor's guilt around being able to make it out. It has allowed me, though, to see that these types of things happen everywhere. You know, I've lived in seven cities um, in states, and in every case, there's crime that happens. There are people who die randomly, people who were targeted, and it's just part of life, and it's the way that life works. And in many ways, that has given me solace, but in many ways, it also 
re-traumatizes me every time I experience or see a shooting that happens, a school shooting, for instance, or a wave of crime that happens. Um, the friends that I lost who were um, who held the same dreams that I did, that we, we talked about our lives in this moment. Um, you know, I talked about Frank Miles, who was shot and killed in front of our school. But my best friend, Letta Melendez, who didn't live past 17. My friend, Karen Treadwell, who died at 22. Tanya McWhorter, who died when we were 13 years old. And these were all people who I always thought were more talented than me, that had so much to give to the world. And so I do feel oftentimes a tremendous amount of survivor's guilt because I know the potential that they held and so many people um, hold in these communities. Were these friends shot? They died in lots of different ways. Frank was shot. Letta died in a car accident. Karen Treadwell died in a house fire. And Tanya McWhorter um, was murdered. Yeah. That's a lot to deal with. Did any of the things that you tried to brush off, you know, any of the violent events that you witnessed or that you know, your friend's murders, um, so th- these things that you tried to brush off and just keep moving forward, did they surface while you were on your mushroom trip trying to deal with racial trauma? Yes and no. Like, after January 6th, and I felt... Um, completely broken down, a lot of the things that I had experienced in my life started to surface. And I think it was in combination with the quietness of the pandemic and being stuck in the house um, and alone with my thoughts more um, really brought them to the surface for me. So I'd already been dealing with so much of that consciously. But when I went to Jamaica um, and I I was afraid of what would come up for me, I thought like, oh my gosh, now I'm really going to sit in it. What actually ended up happening was that I had an experience with my family, my grandparents, my aunts, my uncles. Um, it was a beautiful thing because I didn't understand before um, I took psilocybin that that would be the thing that I need to contend with is my relationship with my family and um, that connection. So working with you now, and you've been you've been contributing interviews to our show for a couple of years, but it's only since June that you've been a full-time co-host on our show. And I'm wondering if you're going through a process of finding out who you are in the context of fresh air, as opposed to who you were in the context of here and now, or Silicon Valley bureau chief, or TV reporter, or creator and host of your podcast, because I think they're all in some ways the same but slightly different Tanya's. I am. I'm going through a profound shift in understanding of who I am. And really, all of my experiences culminating into one person. To be a black person in the United States means that you have, you know, you live in duality. There is the person that you are at work. There is the person you are at home. And to a certain extent, we all have those personas, but it's even more so for a person of color because you're seeing yourself as white people see you and then you're seeing yourself as you see yourself. And 
all of that is kind of coming together into one person for me. Like I, um, I want to bring to this show the fullness and the richness of all of my experience, all of my thinking and being myself. And, you know, that means unlearning all the things I learned in many ways in television news on how to speak, how to ask questions, what's important, why it's important. Yes, I'm serving all audiences, but there really is no way to serve all audiences truly. You really have to lean into your curiosities in a way that gives people something new. You know, if it's truly coming from my from my curiosities, then that will allow people to see things in a new and different way or experience a topic that they thought they knew in a new way that lets them not only understand the person I'm interviewing, but also understand my point of view as a black person in this country, the way I view the world. You know, um, I recently in- interviewed Jeremy O'Harris, uh, the playwright, and he said something really interesting about his uh, Broadway play, Slave Play. They had mirrors in the theater that allowed the audience goers to see themselves and see the people behind them and on the sides of them. And in the beginning, folks would see that, oh, you know, there were certain parts of the play that only white audiences laughed at. Then you would hear a wave of laughter from black audience members, and they realized they were laughing at different things. But over time, within that space, towards the end, they were laughing at the same things because white audiences were able to see, oh, this is the this is the way, the, this is the humor of this audience, of these black people in this audience, and I now see it. And vice literally versa. see it because of the mirrors. Exactly, they literally could see, see each it. other. Yeah. Yes, and so I think the misconception that we often have in journalism is that the white way is the right way. The white way is the neutral way, is the objective way, and everything else is kind of like a side view. It's not the main view. And that's flawed because if we all think of ourselves as equal, that's not true. All of our vantage points really sit in the center, but it's making space and room for for that experience and that lens on the world. Tanya, it's really been great to have this conversation. I'm so glad we did it. And I just want to say I'm so grateful that you agreed To co-host our show, I'm so happy to be working with you and to hear your work on our show. Terry, thank you. And thank you for being so generous in spirit and generous in sharing the mic. And it's truly an honor and a pleasure to be co-hosting the show with you. Tanya Mosley is the new co-host of Fresh Air. A little later, we'll hear her interview with Jeff Goodell, author of the new book, The Heat Will Kill You First, Life and Death on a Scorched Planet. It's about how rising temperatures will change our lives. The new film Joyride is an R-rated road trip comedy about four Asian Americans traveling together in China. It's the first movie directed by Adele Lim, a co-writer on Crazy Rich Asians, and the ensemble cast includes Stephanie Hsu, a recent supporting actress Oscar nominee for Everything Everywhere All at Once. Our film critic Justin Chang has a review. There's an early moment in Joyride when you'll know if you're on board with this exuberantly raunchy comedy or not. On a neighborhood playground, a white kid tells a young Chinese-American girl named Lolo that the place is off-limits to ching-chongs. 
Lolo then does something that maybe a lot of us who've been on the receiving end of racist bullying have fantasized about doing. She drops an F-bomb and punches him in the face. It's an extreme response, but also a hilarious and frankly cathartic one. A blissfully efficient counter to every stereotype of the shy, docile Asian kid. Lolo soon becomes best friends with Audrey, one of the only other Asian-American girls in their Washington State suburb. That aside, the two could hardly be more different. Where Lolo is unapologetically crude and outspoken, Audrey is quiet and eager to please. And while Lolo speaks Mandarin fluently and grew up steeped in Chinese culture, Audrey is more westernized, having been adopted as a baby in China and raised by white parents. Years later, they're still best friends and total opposites. Audrey, played by Ashley Park, is a lawyer on the fast track to making partner at her firm, while Lolo, played by Sherry Cola, is a broke artist who makes sexually explicit sculptures. The story gets going when Audrey is sent on a business trip to Beijing to woo a potential client. Lolo comes along for fun and to serve as Audrey's translator. Lolo also brings along her K-pop-obsessed cousin, nicknamed Deadeye, who's played by the non-binary actor Sabrina Wu. As they get off the plane, Audrey marvels at what it's like to be surrounded by Asians for a change. I don't think I've ever been around only Asian people. I mean, we look like everyone else for once. I think we blend right in. Yeah, but people here can tell Chinese Chinese from American Chinese. What do you mean? See? Okay. Hong Kong Chinese. Bluetooth. Shanghai Chinese. Bougie. Ooh. Taiwanese. Weird but cute. What kind of Chinese are they? What the f- is wrong with you? Are you trying to get canceled? Those are Koreans. Oh. That's howdy fun. It's a K-pop group. Yeah, they all have the same face. That's how you can tell. The script, written by Cherry Chiva Pravat Dumrong and Teresa Xiao, is heavy on contrivance. Thanks to Lolo's meddling, Audrey winds up putting her work on hold and trying to track down her birth mother. But the director Adele Lim keeps the twists and the laughs coming so swiftly that it's hard not to get swept up in the adventure. The comedy kicks up a notch once Audrey looks up her old college pal, Kat, who's now a successful actor on a Chinese soap opera. Kat is played by Stephanie Hsu, who, after her melancholy breakout performance in Everything Everywhere All at Once, gets to show off some dazzling comedic chops here. Like Lolo, with whom she initially butts heads, Kat has had a lot of sex, something she's trying to hide from her strictly Christian fiancé. But no one in Joyride holds onto their secrets or their inhibitions for very long. As they make their way through the scenic countryside, Audrey, Lolo, Cat, and Deadeye run afoul of a drug dealer, hook up with some hunky Chinese basketball players, and disguise themselves as a fledgling K-pop group for reasons too outlandish to get into here. In a way, Joyride, which counts Seth Rogen as one of its producers, marks the latest step in a logical progression for the mainstream Hollywood comedy. If Bridesmaids and Girls Trip set out to prove that women could be as gleefully gross as, say, the men in the Hangover movies, this one is clearly bent on doing the same for Asian American women and non-binary characters. Like many of those earlier models, Joyride boasts mile-a-minute pop culture references, filthy one-liners, and a few priceless sight gags, including some strategic full-frontal nudity. 
Naturally, it also forces Audrey and Lolo to confront their differences in ways that put their friendship to the test. If it doesn't all work, the hit-to-miss ratio is still impressively high. Joyride may be reworking a formula, but it does so with disarming energy and verve, plus a level of savvy about Asian culture that we still rarely see in Hollywood movies. Director Lim can stage a gross-out moment or a frisky montage as well as anyone, but she also gives the comedy a subversive edge, whether she's pushing back on lazy assumptions about Asian masculinity or, in one queasily funny scene, making clear just how racist Asians can be toward other Asians. The actors are terrific. Deadeye is named Deadeye for their seeming lack of expression, but Sabrina Wu makes this character, in some ways, the emotional glue that holds the group together. You can hear Sherry Cola's past stand-up experience in just about every one of Lolo's foul-mouthed zingers. And Ashley Park gives the movie's trickiest performance as Audrey, an insecure overachiever who, as the movie progresses, learns a lot about herself. Maybe that's a cliché, too. But Joyride gives it just the punch it needs. Justin Chang is film critic for the L.A. Times. He reviewed the new film Joyride. Coming up, we'll talk about the Earth's rising temperatures with Jeff Goodell, author of the new book The Heat Will Kill You First, Life and Death on a Scorched Planet. I'm Terry Gross, and this is Fresh Air Weekend. This message comes from NPR sponsor BetterHelp. When you keep your stress bottled up, it can eat away at you. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to make them better. Try BetterHelp Online Therapy, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp at BetterHelp.com NPR today to get 10% off your first month. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Teladoc Health. There are lots of reasons for wanting to be healthy. Family, work, living a fuller life. Teladoc Health understands. Whether you have diabetes, high blood pressure, or just need to manage your weight, Teladoc Health can help. Visit TeladocHealth.com slash What's Your Why for more information. That's T-E-L-A-D-O-C health slash what's your why. This message comes from NPR sponsor Mint Mobile. From the gas pump to the grocery store, inflation is everywhere. So Mint Mobile is offering premium wireless starting at just $15 a month. To get your new phone plan for just $15, go to mintmobile.com slash switch. Our co-host Tanya Mosley has our next interview. Here's Tanya. Somewhere in the world right now, you're probably trying to beat the summer heat or bracing for it. And if it feels more miserable than ever before, that's because it is. The earth is getting hotter, and turning up the AC to solve it or hoping it will pass is wishful thinking, says writer Jeff Goodell. In his new book, The Heat Will Kill You First, Jeff Goodell wants us to look at heat not as a minor inconvenience, but as an active force that can kill us even before we understand our lives are at risk. And no bones about it, says Goodell, extreme heat is almost entirely caused by our use of fossil fuels, from our transportation, heating and manufacturing, and it's warming the earth in ways that none of us will be able to escape. Jeff Goodell is a contributing editor at Rolling Stone and has covered climate change for more than a decade. He's a New York Times bestselling author of seven books, including The Water Will Come, Rising Seas, Sinking Cities, and The Remaking of the Civilized World. His latest book, The Heat Will Kill You First, Life and Death on a Scorched Planet, is out now. Jeff Goodell, welcome back to Fresh Air. 
Hi, thank you for having me. I think the best way for us to get into this topic might be for you to read the first opening lines of your book. Can I have you read it? Sure, I'd be happy to. When the heat comes, it's invisible. It doesn't bend tree branches or blow hair across your face to let you know it's arrived. The ground doesn't shake. It just surrounds you and works on you in ways that you can't anticipate or control. You sweat. Your heart races. You're thirsty. Your vision blurs. The sun feels like the barrel of a gun pointed at you. Plants look like they're crying. Birds vanish from the sky and take refuge in deep shade. Cars are untouchable. Colors fade. The air smells burned. You can imagine fire even before you see it. Mm. What you write in this book is it's frightening. It's frightening to read. At the same time, for billions of years, the Earth has experienced things like volcanic eruptions and meteor strikes that brought about these wild temperature swings. So what makes right now different? What makes right now different is that we're uh, living through this. Um, during Earth's past, the temperature of the Earth has, you're right, swung crazily in, in much hotter, much colder. You know, there was a moment, there has been moments in Earth's history when it was completely covered with ice and moments in Earth's history when there were palm trees growing in what's now the Arctic. Um, but the, the issue is that... Um, you know, we humans and all living things are invested in this sort of climate, this temperate climate that we are living in now. It's what we've evolved to deal with. And our bodies and all living things around us are, um, you know, like these machines that are exquisitely kind of tuned to this temperature range. And as we begin, begin to push out of that temperature range, as we begin to get these um, extreme heat events, and as we heat up the planet, it has big problems for the sort of mechanisms of life. The first place we go to in the book is the Pacific Northwest. It's one of the more temperate places in the United States. But I think it was, it was 2021 when almost a thousand people died over the course of a week because of the extreme heat. What does that tragedy tell us about how heat waves are becoming, as you put it, more democratic, a condition that the wealthy and privileged, as you say, won't be able to escape? Well, one of the most surprising things about the 2021 heat wave in the Pacific Northwest is that no one expected it. Um, you know, every time I talk about climate change or, you know, have uh, give a, a book talk or something, everyone always asks me, where should I move? You know, where do I go to, to you know, where is safe? And, you know, of course, there is no safe place. There's nowhere that you're immune to what's going on on our planet. But there are better and worse places. And, you know, the Pacific Northwest always seemed like a place. There's lots of water. There's lots of, you know, forests. There's um, it's a relatively cool climate. No climate models were suggesting that this was a place that was vulnerable to extreme heat. Um, and yet it happened. And, you know, in British Columbia, the temperature is hit 121 degrees Fahrenheit, um, a, a town virtually spontaneously combusted and burned to the ground. Um, you know, this was about as likely as snow in the Sahara. Uh, and, and so what this shows us is that, um, first of all, the atmosphere, our climate is changing in ways that we don't quite understand. And we know that we're moving into a new kind of climate world 
but we don't know exactly what the parameters of that are. And one of the scary things that's happening right now, not just with heat, but but heat is the clearest expression of it, is that the, the you know the climate's reaction to the amount of CO two we've put in the atmosphere is more dramatic and in, behaving in ways that is surprising even the most sort of educated and smartest climate scientists. Mm. What are the surprises that they're encountering about the way that it's moving through? Well, for one thing, you know, I mean, we have these extreme heat events that that are going beyond the boundaries of what anyone anticipated. And and one of the questions that I explore in the book is, you know, given just the amount of CO2 that is in the atmosphere now and just like where we are today, how hot can it get? I mean, I live in Austin, Texas. It was, you know, it was we've had heat indexes of 120 degrees here in Texas in the last couple of weeks. You know, could it get to 130? I mean, no one can say, you know, for sure about that. We don't know. Scientists don't know, like, even how hot it can get right now. N- never mind if we continue burning fossil fuels and add more CO2 to the atmosphere. But there's other things, you know. In in my book, I traveled to Antarctica to look at um, what even small changes in temperature um, the implications. And, you know, the um, West Antarctic ice sheet is incredibly vulnerable in ways that scientists did not understand even 10 years ago to just, you know, a temperature change of like one degree in the Southern Ocean. And the um, West Antarctic ice sheet is beginning to disintegrate. And this was something that no one considered 10 years ago. West Antarctica was seen as this sort of one stable, cool block of ice that was sort of, you know, the warming of the planet hadn't yet penetrated and and you know the wildfires that were that we'd seen in Alberta in the last few weeks you know far bigger and more explosive and hotter than things we'd seen before so all these kinds of things are 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 alarming and you know um it's evidence that we don't really even the the all the science that's been done and all of the incredible research that has been done we don't really know what we're heading into and how chaotic this can get. You make a point to say, though, how we talk about the heat is distorted because we think of it as a temperature scale, as a maybe as a gradual, linear, incremental thing. We think of a hot day or a hot week as just a fluke and things will turn back to normal. This is distorted thinking in light of what you're just saying here, that we have no roadmap for what we're experiencing in this moment. Yeah, we have, I think a lot of people have this idea that, you know, yes, we are warming up the planet, but we're, you know, clean energy is 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 booming. We're going to get this under control. We're going to reduce fossil fuel emissions and everything's going to go back to normal and to be the way it was. And that is um, a profound misunderstanding of the, the moment that we're in. We're heading into a completely different climate regime, a different atmospheric pattern. The physics of what's happening in the atmosphere are very complex. And we know, you know, as with as much certainty as we understand gravity, that when we burn fossil fuels and put CO2 into the atmosphere, it heats things up. But how fast that happens, what the actual kind of cascading effects of that will be, are are still very, very unclear. And so the big idea here is that we are not going back to where we were no matter what we do. We are moving into a different world, and we need to grasp that idea. 
Yeah, this is an important point to make because you're saying that we'll never go back to the cooler temperatures or the temperature scale that we're used to. Like, even if in this moment we made huge changes, we would then always be at this temperature scale. Well, we're going to be in a new climate world for as long as we can, as anyone can imagine. Because another point that's connected to this that's really important to, to, to understand is that the reason that the planet is heating up is because we're putting CO2 into the atmosphere. And CO2 is not like smog, like, you know, air pollution that we think of. You know, I grew up in California. I remember the smog in California. I couldn't see the mountains, you know, five miles away from where I lived. And then catalytic converters were put on cars, you know, um, scrubbers were put on power plants, and the air got cleaned up and it was all great. It was much better. And our air in many places in America is much cleaner than it used to be. That's not what's going to happen with, with CO2. It is essentially permanent when we put it up there. And it's really important to grasp this notion that as every molecule of CO2, every ton of CO2 that we put into the atmosphere warms the planet. And the warming will not stop until we stop emitting CO2 and burning fossil fuels. And that's not going to happen for even in the most optimistic scenarios for, you know, quite a long time. So we are on a warming planet. And even if we stop CO2, we are stuck with that warming planet for a very long time. You know, right now, many of us are sitting in air-conditioned rooms, or we're, we're in our car listening to this conversation with the air conditioning on. Air conditioning, you make a point to say, is distinctly an American invention, but it is not a cooling technology at all. It is a tool for heat redistribution. It's a vicious cycle. Can you explain that? Yeah, I mean, air conditioning you know, change the world. Air conditioning was a um, really, really uh, important innovation. It happened, it was created here in America. Um, you know, some people have argued that it was, you know, as important in the um, change in of our culture as, you know, the personal computer or something like that. I mean, you think about it, you know, Florida, Texas, where I am right now, all of these places would not be the kinds of boom towns that they are if there was not air conditioning. I mean, obviously, people lived in Florida and in Texas and other hot places before, but not the way that they do now. So air conditioning is 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 really important and really um, significant. But, you know, first of all, air conditioning is not a, a magical technology. It doesn't make heat disappear. What AC does is redistribute it. It takes it out of one place and puts it in another place. I think a lot of people kind of intuitively understand this if they think about it. You know, you've probably walked by an air conditioner on the outside of a building, maybe in a city in a window unit, and you and you feel the heat coming out of the air conditioning unit. And the, the air conditioning unit is taking the hot air from inside of the building and dumping and pulling it out and dumping it outdoors, you know, uh, into the street, into the world around it. And so when you have tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands or millions of those in a city all sucking the heat out of one place and blowing it out into the city, you're redistributing the heat and making that city a hotter place. Is renewable energy like solar panels and wind energy a realistic way to combat this? Is Are we there yet to make that a realistic way? Well, uh, you know, um, in a certain way, they're 
different questions. Um, certainly, one of the one of the things that's really interesting that has happened during this Texas heat wave is that you know there was a lot of concern in the last couple of weeks as temperatures have spiked that the grid would go down, and and if it did, as I just mentioned, that would be kind of catastrophic. Um, uh, because there's a lot of extra load on the grid during a heat wave. Everybody's turning up their air conditioners, and and so it really strains the system. But in fact, the grid held up really well here in Texas, and the reason it held up really well in Texas was because of all the solar energy that has gone on to the grid here. You know, Texas is the fossil fuel capital of the world, but the kind of dirty secret is that it's also the renewable energy capital of the United States. And we've put out a tremendous amount of solar power and wind power onto the grid here. And that is essentially what saved the grid during during this um, heat spike in the last couple of weeks. And it's a really important case study that really shows how important it is to shift away from fossil fuel energy and how, you know, everyone has always talked about solar and wind and renewable power it's not reliable and all that well in fact we've just proven that it was more it's more reliable and in these times of extreme heat and stress they're more reliable than traditional fossil fuel energy and you know it's a really hopeful kind of uh textbook study of why we need to shift away from generating power with fossil fuels and and move faster towards renewable energy. Do you believe that it's irresponsible to have children during this time? We talk about population control often when we talk about the environment. Well, that's a question that comes up a lot. And, um, you know, I'm the father of three children. Um, I think that the question of having a child is a very personal one for anyone. I, 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 so I hesitate to make any kind of judgments, certainly about whether it's responsible or irresponsible. But uh, I can tell you how I feel, you know, about it. Um, I think it, when I hear that, it makes me very sad because to me, um, children are the great hope of the world. My kids, I spend a lot of time, we've obviously... I'm sure they will tell you if they were here that they're like tired of hearing about all of this growing up with a father who writes about uh, climate change. I think is there. I think they're they would much prefer that I were a football coach or something. Um, but but um, you know I think kids are the hope of the world. They're the ones who are going to change things. They're the ones who have everything at stake. Look at Greta Thunberg, how powerful she has been in activating people and in, you know, building political awareness of what's going on. You know, we need young minds to solve this problem. Us old folks are not going to be the ones who do it. You know, we need people to, to do this. And you know, on the question of overpopulation, you know, uh, the, I think that gets mis um, gets contorted, right? I mean, the, the 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 problem is not too many people on the planet. The problem is, as far as climate change goes, the problem is um, too many r- rich people with highly consumptive habits. You know, the the um, vast majority of the carbon pollution comes from the top 10% of uh, the uh, wealthiest Mm. population. 
And, you know, the idea that, you know, you know, uh, poor people in Bangladesh or, or wherever you want to name are, are the problem. Their, you know, their carbon consumption, their carbon footprint is, is minuscule compared to, you know, uh, you know, a wealthy, you know, tech investor here in, uh, in Austin who flies around, uh, for vacations and, has a giant house that um, you know requires a you know battalion of air conditioners, and you know it's just it's not a problem of sheer number of people. It's a problem of what those people do and how they live. Jeff Goodell, thank you so much for this conversation and your book. Well, thank you so much for having me. Jeff Goodell is the author of "The Heat Will Kill You First: Life and Death on a Scorched Planet." He spoke with Fresh Air's co-host Tanya Mosley. Fresh Air Weekend is produced by Teresa Madden. Fresh Air's executive producer is Danny Miller. Our technical director and engineer is Audrey Bentham. I'm Terry Gross. This message comes from Schwab. It's easy to invest in ideas you believe in with Schwab investing themes like online music and videos, artificial intelligence, and electric vehicles. Choose from over 40 customizable themes. More at schwab.com. Support for NPR and the following message come from IXL Online. Is your child asking questions on their homework you don't feel equipped to answer? IXL Learning uses advanced algorithms to give the right help to each kid, no matter the age or personality. One subscription gets you everything. One site for all the kids in your home, pre-K to 12th grade. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And NPR listeners can get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when they sign up today at IXL.com NPR. All that sitting and swiping, your body is adapting to your technology. Learn how and what you can do about it. I really felt like the cloud in my brain kind of dissipated. Once I started realizing what a difference these little bricks were making, there's no turning back for me. Take NPR's Body Electric Challenge. Listen to the series wherever you get your podcasts.